Welcome to the Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. We are excited to have Dr. Nathan Long, president of Saybrook University, as our guest. Yep. Now let's talk about your journey and what led you to the presidency at, at Saybrook. And was that one of your goals, to become a president? No, great question. So my journey, as I, you know, you and I were just talking briefly about, started off in music performance and then ended up in student life, student affairs. I got into uh, some deep study in history, sociology, a little philosophy, and political economy uh, in the uh, master's and doctoral programs in med psych, and really enjoyed, and not just enjoyed, but found how impactful I could be as an educator and as a, a potential leader uh, working with um, young people, essentially, uh, who were trying to figure out what they were doing with their lives. Um, the classroom was really exciting to me. I enjoyed teaching um, and the opportunities. I, you know, I, I use the story a lot in terms of when I talked to our faculty, I had a student email me about, you know, four years ago after he had taken a class with me as a grad teaching assistant, and he is now a major teacher leader in the Cincinnati area. And it's that moment when he says, I know you don't think you have an impact, but what you taught me and my wife as we were going through those classes really helped me develop as a, a young person, young adult, and into the career I'm in. And so it's a reaffirmation of the work we do day in and day out in higher education. I think sometimes with all the the political, social, cultural issues that can seem to get us all down, there, there is a very strong, bright spot there for what universities and colleges, regardless of size, offer uh, the students of today. So uh, for me, the journey, you know, it, it led to a stint at Arizona State for about a year on, as a faculty associate and work in student life and housing. I came back because I was recruited uh, to take over the Dean of General Education, Liberal Arts and Sciences at a, a nonprofit startup, if you will, as a college of nursing and health sciences at Christ College, uh, where I was uh, asked to help build out basically a, a standalone gen ed program that would service that institution. And uh, it was really exciting. It was kind of an odd thing for me to go into. Everyone at Arizona State that I was colleagues with said, you're crazy. I mean, like, that's like super small. What are you going to do there? What's going to, uh, how's that going to benefit you in your career? And I said, you know, um, I'm a Midwesterner at heart. I'm going to give it a try because, you know, I'm going to be closer to family, but also have the ability to start something from scratch with a leader, uh, the president at the time. She was just really dynamic and visionary and we built that out and you know ultimately after she retired in 2010 we had a couple failed national searches for the uh, her replacement and the board reached out to me I was the chief academic officer of the institution and I, I, I say this kind of kiddingly but I think it was I think it's actually accurate um, I didn't really want the job, and I think they were desperate to find someone to just sit in the seat until they could find someone to fill it. So I took on the interim role, and I'm like, I don't want it. I'll just take it for a minute and get back to deaning and get back to teaching because that's where my heart was. And over the course of four, five, six months, 
the team and I really developed this report because we found some real challenges in the institution financially. And we started talking about how can we make this into something super powerful and lay the groundwork for a long-term sustainable future. And I was hooked at that moment in time. I'm like, okay, I could maybe become a college president. This could be interesting. And so after about six months, I applied for and uh, uh, received the permanent appointment. And Sabro came along really four years later so I've been at Christ College for about 10 years at that point in time. And there was a recruitment uh, officer for a search firm who had reached out to me about two different positions. And I had really intended to probably end my career at Christ in terms of presidenting and then just go back into faculty and do something uh, like that. Uh, when they reached out to me, uh, Saybrook has a fairly storied history. And that history is grounded in humanistic psychology with people like Abraham Maslow, who is one of our early founders, Rollo May, Carl Rogers. Um, I knew a couple of the folks who had uh, came out of the program and happy to talk about that later that were just um, in academic speak, kind of the, the lions, the heroes uh, of my day in grad school. And I'm like, I gotta go there and check it out. And when I came out for the interviews, uh, myself, the board, we all fell in love with each other. And I'm like, this has got to be my new home. I, it was really an opportunity. You got the benefit of all, all the things that uh, kind of are there, a virtual institution, essentially. Uh, you've got faculty who are incredibly gifted and talented at what they do. You've got an incredibly uh, you know, talented group of students who are coming to us from all over. Uh, the country and several foreign countries just made sense. And then the graduate level was something I really wanted to be a part of. Uh, so I found my way to Saybrook that way. And here I am eight, eight years later and still enjoying the ride uh, so far. And you had mentioned, you know, turnaround. You know, you've seen, you've seen an increase in enrollments, um, you know, in Saybrook you know, when you came in was operating at a, you know, at a deficit, right? And, and yeah. you know, you were able to, you know, right the ship, so to speak, um, and see profitability. Can you, can you talk about, you know, what, what steps do you take to do that? <laughs> yeah, you know, and, and I think, especially nowadays, it's even more acute, right? I mean, we're seeing it in uh, exponential form. So I think a couple of things were important to our success. Um, the first of course was our affiliation with TCS education system. So our board that hired me had also in parallel started working to identify a partner uh, to work with. And TCS offers a whole array of services, back office solutions that we would essentially uh, pay the system for to receive those, but it's a little more nuance in that the system itself is a, a really a, a truly collaborative consortium so we work across five now almost six universities and colleges to really maximize and leverage resources staffing uh, all the back office stuff so that was really i think central to our uh, initial success and then of course you have all the the major important decisions around 
enrollment, finances, uh, the importance around driving to fundamentals. That was always what I kept, you know, stressing to our teams that, you know, I think first and foremost, it was in order to make more revenue because we're, you know, not receiving those state dollars from, uh, you know, uh, the state legislature. Um, we're tuition dependent. We have to bring in more students. We have to keep those students and graduate those students and give them a quality education. And so that was central to a lot of the work that we did initially. We also had to right size the institution. So it was when I came in, it had been somewhat right sized, but there was still a lot of administrative uh, bloat. And I would say I operated in a very lean fashion or try to anyway. I think you know, as you get bigger, you have to add in more resources and infrastructure to support students and faculty. But those early days, that was a very important aspect to it. So we had to do some uh, restructuring, reorganization. There were some layoffs in that process. It's never fun, but you have to make those decisions in the moment to uh, really save the institution and the, and the mission. And I didn't do it alone. I think it's probably a theme amongst everybody. It, it really was. And you have to have a good board. Uh, and, and not just a good board, a very devoted board to the work that you're about to do. Uh, you have to have a devoted core group of leadership in order to make that happen. And so those first three years, we were not quite, you know, as you mentioned, profitable or surplus oriented uh, in nonprofit speak. But as we shifted and started playing to those fundamentals, uh, we've run the last five, six years or so. Uh, with very strong surplus. We're closing out this year with a, a surplus of about $1.4 million uh, across the board. And that surplus is, as many in the nonprofit sector know, it doesn't go to stakeholders, it go well, to, to shareholders rather, it goes back to the institution. So we've been able to rebuild our endowment reserves. And uh, yeah, because as you mentioned, we were bleeding cash to the tune of you know, anywhere from a million to $4 million a year from between 2008 and 2014, really. So everything had taken a hit. So I would say th those were some of the key elements uh, behind the turnaround success. And I would say central to that, you got to have a board that's on board and a great leadership team that will help you get through those tough times, even if you do nothing else. So, mm -hmm. yep. so um, do you all offer... Uh, on campus as well as online? I know all of your students take some form of online. Yep, yep. So we are, I would say, 95% virtual. We do offer what we call residential experiences. In fact, Saybrook was the pioneer in that area back in the early 70s. So we would bring students out for usually one to two weeks at a time um, and sit in community and also in academic work. Um, and so we've continued that tradition for the last 50 years. We now have two a year during the pandemic, we're still kind of in, I, I think we're in a kind of a gray zone. Uh, our our uh, residential experience has been largely virtual. So it, it was all virtual. So technically 100% at that point in time. And usually our residential experiences apply to students in clinical settings such or clinical programs such as uh, clinical psychology, counseling, um, some of those uh, other programs that require more of a, I guess, a human touch element to it, you know, we'll, we'll meet in person. Um, but many of our students and our faculty are 
veering towards some sort of mashup because they're seeing the value of the virtual experience along with the ability to bring and provide more access to students across the country. So um, yeah, largely virtual with some in-person. We do, you know, as we kind of come out of the pandemic, right now we're also revisioning the residential experience. So used to be we'd meet in one location, we're experimenting with regional uh, residential experiences with shorter time bursts because we have working adults that are coming to us for their education. So trying to you know, accommodate the very real needs of, of today's, you know, what, 2022 learner, right? As they come in with three kids, a job, maybe two jobs and trying to balance the academics on top of it. Yeah, yeah. Meeting students where they are. Without a doubt, without a doubt, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, when I, I know oftentimes when I mention the word competition, collaboration typically is part of that, that discussion. Um, can you talk a little bit about your educational partnerships with regional organizations and kind of what's led to your degree pathway programs and how that's helped benefit SABRA? So I think if I understand the question correctly, like, are, are you speaking to regulators or more along the lines of different institutions like uh, higher ed institutions? Yeah, well, it, uh, different institutions or even local business partnerships. Oh, I got you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I think it, for Saybrook, I, I would say our partnerships have, they've shifted a lot over the last few years. So we moved from the Bay Area in San Francisco to Los Angeles about three years ago. And that dynamic changed substantially. So I would say that we've rebuilt our uh, relations, our community relations, our partnerships over those years to really be centralized here to the greater Los Angeles area. Um, you know, they have been really vital to us. We've been able to uh, develop out some really unique partnerships with uh, and, and I will say they're national in scope as well, but I'll get to that in a moment. You know, everything from our MBA, DBA program, looking to provide services to regional local hospitals, to uh, different corporations, to the, you know, panels and surveys that we serve on for economic outlooks. Those have been instrumental in providing a pathway for our students and our faculty uh, to talk through. We're... Uh, commencing with a new program this year, professional development program featuring uh, our integrative health faculty and, and business faculty working together to provide um, training and education for a 31 hospital system uh, in Colorado. Um, of course, the idea is that we're gonna provide these bite-sized training you know, experiences uh, and hopefully uh, some will see such value in that that they'll be coming to us for their uh, degrees or certifications. We also have a, a partnership with the uh, Texas Medical Center, uh, which is one of the largest, I think, in the world, um, and the Institute for Spirituality and Health out of, out of that area. That has been really dynamic and interesting in terms of linking the academic work we do, recruiting of students, and also providing a zone for residential experiences. So, you know, and we have to be, you know, unique in how we're doing that and what we're looking for and that it's providing value add for them as well as for us. One thing that I always kick off partnership discussions with 
is this can't just benefit Saybrook. How, how am I going to help you? How are we going to support you and the goals that your business has? And sometimes we walk away from a partnership because they're not clear on their own outcomes or goals that they're needing uh, from us because we want to make sure that we're being in service to, to our community of members that we serve. We also have an international series of partnerships. And I've just given you a, a, you know, a rough idea of what we've got going. Uh, one out of uh, Austria, IMC University in Krems, and one out of South Africa. Um, and those have been really unique in the sense that we've provided what we call uh, international hubs for education, where our students and, and their faculty and students will join together in two weeks of intensives. And then we do faculty exchanges. So we brought their faculty over here for our residential experiences, which has been really well received. And it gives our students, and it, you know, we're not alone in this with the international offerings that we do, um, but I think for Saybrook, that is new territory that we've been able to cultivate uh, over the years and really support our students in, in branching out and seeing what else is out there and how it's being done. There's some really amazing models that we're doing or that are being done out there um, that I think higher ed here in the United States could take a lot of uh, cues from uh, in terms of how we do business and work with students. So, mm -hmm. yeah. So, so who does Saybrook compete with today? So Saybrook competes with, you know, in terms of our marketplace uh, and our, our uh, sector, uh, I would say we have several. So you look at Pacifica uh, Graduate uh, College up in the Bay Area, uh, you have a number of integrative health uh, entities across the board, most psychology institutions like William James out on the East Coast to uh, the, the Michigan uh, College, I think it's the Michigan Professional School of Psychology. Um, and then we, of course, have competitors. I would say also because we're graduate only and we do attract a significant number of students from who are interested in uh, Ivy League and second tier elite schools, we get a lot of those folks who come to us because of the convenience factor and the interest in our faculty and the research that's being done here. So we have a kind of a broad swath of institutions that we, we do compete with. And I would say, you know, relative to the competition factor, one of the things that we have found has been in our sweet spot is that combination of really qualified faculty and the accessibility piece. So students are like, yeah, okay, I'm looking for a high quality PhD that I can walk away with, feel proud of, that's also online or virtual and have all the things that, you know, I could get at a, you know, a big institution like a, mm -hmm. a North Carolina, for example. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> Well, and, and so you'll notice over my shoulder, I've got, which there we go. Okay. Yep. I, I use the right finger. Sometimes I'm not quite sure on the video, but <laughs> artificial intelligence, we had a symposium about a month ago that yep. had a, the CTO from Texas Instruments on the business side that we had a number of folks on the presidents from uh, post-secondary institutions. And so there was a, there was a conversation around technology and how that's changing the job market. So, um, you know, so with the degrees that Saybrook offers and preparing students, you know, for the business world, how are you seeing technology playing a role and, and potentially creating jobs in the future that don't exist today? Or maybe certain jobs 
that are in place today are going to be changed or altered in some fashion. How do you make sure that students are ready for that change? And maybe you can even define that for the degrees that Saybrook offers. Yeah, I think we're, we're still in the phase of developing that out. So I, I would argue that for us anyway, that we have some ground to lay on that in that area. Um, you know, we've taken the stance that Technology needs to serve our constituents, and it needs, and and that means all of them. And so, it's at the right place at the right time. But we do have a new technology master plan that says, okay, that was a great philosophy maybe five years ago. It's rapidly changing. In fact, AI has been here for twenty years, so we need to get on the train and start moving. Um, I think. Our students now, probably more than ever before, are very, very attuned to what needs to, what they need to be looking for and thinking about. And that also means adjusting our programs to provide them training and resources in those. So that means uh, we're looking at IT certifications as stackables on top of graduate degrees, once thought of as unheard of, but that is in our uh, list of things to start doing. And also making some, you know, it's hard to require things of graduate students because their programs are so jam-packed as it is, but creating co-curricular opportunities for them to engage in to understand how is psychology changing, for example, with the advent and the, well, not even really the advent, but the uh, proliferation of uh, AI, but also telehealth, telemedicine, what that looks like state by state and nationally and how they're going to serve. Um, business is obviously another big one for us. How do you run a sustainable business and leverage technology to that effect and really uh, leverage AI to maximize profitability, but also uh, maximize the work you're doing in the areas of you know, people uh, and, and preserving the planet? Um, so I think those are kind of the key areas that we need to be focusing in on. And to your point around jobs, jobs will be changing drastically and they already have been, right? So the nature of work has shifted, but I would go back to also the point that today, right now, as where we sit, we're in a massive mental health crisis in this country, where over 144 million people are unserved and that's in every location, not just talking the coast, we're talking middle America, South, uh, you know, the South, where there's not enough therapists, too, too many people with needs, and the, you know, the demand is really high for that. So we've got to kind of do the both and, and Saybrook's a, you know, kind of a pebble in the, the big lake right now. And so we need all of higher ed to come together. And I think technology can help to leverage that, right? Through mm -hmm. a variety of different means, whether it's talk therapy, telehealth, um, but connecting people in different and meaningful ways. And so um, I, you know, my hope is that Saybrook will, will be on I would say within that tier of folks that are helping to lead, I don't know that we are leaders yet, but we have some work to do on that. I think some of the work coming out of Arizona State um, that's coming out of UCLA, for example, those two places are doing some fabulous work. Stanford, of course, you know, kind of the seed of that. Um, but, but we need every institution. I mean, these are the big dogs, right? Um, I think for the smaller institutions to not only be relevant, but be contributing is as essential, and especially where technology and preparation for students is concerned. Mm -hmm. So I, hopefully that's a 
satisfying answer for you. Yeah, definitely. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so how, how big do you want to be? I mean, are there any restrictions? Do you have any constraints, whether it be from a bandwidth standpoint to, to, you know, as far as the number of students that you're trying to bring in? Yeah, no, it's a great question. I, Saybrook has the potential to be as large as we want it to be. Um, I think the the constraints around that are really visioning for the future and saying, okay, how are we, how are we planning to grow with? And you you hear this at times from people grow with quality. I'm like, if you're not growing with quality, that's not a good thing anyway. So that should just be a kind of a basic, right? Growth is important. You got to keep your programs up. You got to keep your student services up. So we've grown, you know, roughly 150% or more over the last eight years. So 440 to 425 to about 1,000 students this year. We'll probably hit around 1,100. I think Saybrook's kind of long-term trajectory could be anywhere from, you know, 2,500 to 5,000 in the next five to eight years. Um, and honest to goodness, I think, you know, if we take SNU as any model, we could grow as big as uh, SNU being Southern New Hampshire University, mm-hmm. we could grow as big as we want to, but we have to think about how we procure those students in, a, in, in a, an appropriate way and how we serve them in their education. And I think where a lot of colleges miss the boat in their growth goals is that kind of correlated you know, effort to support their students across the board. And, you know, we've run into buzzsaws during the growth process. We were like, okay, we've got to add on an entire new infrastructure around student support and retention to make sure as we bring those students in that we're keeping them in. And it's, um, we just had this conversation uh, on the leadership team. Um, you know, my job is to make sure we're talking about some of the fundamentals, but you know, my fabulous team is also talking about, okay, we want to graduate these students, which I believe in too, um, and that they're feeling great about it. So you have to kind of do all of those things at once. So the the short answer is Saybrook has, I think, a lot of potential to grow uh, if we do it in the, you know, correct, thoughtful ways with a lot of fundamentals and attention to detail. So Man, you could talk to me on any day. I'd say 10, 20, 40,000. Just, yes, we could right. do it. Our faculty might beg to differ, but, you right. know, yeah. <laughs> well, and I'll tell you, 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 you know, you hit on the point that, you know, so many, um, you know, presidents have a focus on new student enrollment and, and for good reason. But you also touched upon retention, you know, and how oh, yeah. valuable and important it is to, to see that you know, that student moved through and persist to graduation. That's right. You know, so, so how do you, how do you do that? How do you improve that? It's a literally $64,000 question for every institution and it's going to be different, right? For everybody. And I think uh, it with some overlap, but I think for Saybrook where we've had success and where we've had challenges is if the delivery of the education falters, you lose students. If the outreach to students is spotty, you lose students. So you have to continuously focus on excellence in teaching, excellence in support, and continuous engagement across our community. One of the reasons we've had fairly good success on the retention front, and we can do better, is our continuous engagement. And that's because we've built out what I would call the, the former student affairs guy, 
there's absolutely no reason a, a fully virtual university shouldn't have a you know best in class student affairs division that's really cultivating not only retention efforts but um, you know co-curricular activities that keep students engaged building out leadership you know we know whether it's undergrad or grad if students are engaged in community they're going to stay in you know if even if they don't like some of the things that happen at the university right they're still going to be like, hey, you know what? This is my home. This is where I'm graduating from. I'm proud of it. I want to stay engaged. So you, that's, that's a really key piece. And I would say that's a common theme across institutions. I think the third piece around this is you can't take for granted the, the gains and the efforts that you know, you've used in years previously. And you always have to be responsive in the moment. Um, I think so many institutions, when they figure out that they've got it solved, they stop assessing, they stop evaluating what's been working and shifting as needed to address the time. And I think the pandemic's been a really important uh, kind of, you know, component to all of this, right? So it, uh, the things that worked two years prior to the pandemic did not work during the pandemic. And now we're coming out of a pandemic. And you're seeing very different challenges at the undergraduate and graduate level, right? So you're seeing students detaching uh, from their courses. There's a big issue around value. Uh, there's a big issue around concern over the economy and what do I, how do I afford this uh, with, with all kind of the, the major things, economic, social, political factors converging into one spot. And if we're not attentive to that, if we're not, you know, staying true to our students and, and to our faculty and our teams, we're going to lose ground on that. And so I would say that's a big issue. Um, we also, and the last thing I'll say, you, you, you'll be, you probably be sorry, Brad, you know, you pulled the string. I could keep going for hours. No, I, I love it. This is great. So, you know, I think the other, the other major thing is this issue of, you know, students stopping out for longer periods of time, because there's just so much happening in individuals' lives. I mean, you and I were talking, you have a family, young family, you're working full-time, stack on top of that a degree, then add to the side people in your family who get sick, or if there are challenges out that, outside of that, all of those factors, if we're not staying attuned to it, are going to be mammothly problematic for us. Um, and so, <clears throat> I'll tie this back to your AI question. There's some amazing things going on with Google and with some other uh, technology entities that are looking at how do you overlay on top of your student information and learning management systems, AI, that can pull out those warning signs early and often so that we're not losing track. And you may say, well, you're a school of a thousand students. Yeah, and we're a school of a thousand students. And so, we, we need to figure out what are the, the pressure points that our students are facing so that we can intervene faster. Um, and this isn't a, you know, like a major privacy invasion so much as it's like, how are they pulling in their classes? You know, are there things that we're seeing that uh, we could be intervening qu more quickly on that would support them? And, and that goes to us advancing and evolving with using AI technology to, to really uh, rapid, rapidly assess and uh, diagnose and then also apply 
you know, fixes or the medicine, if you will, uh, to support our students. And so I think we're going to have to always be in that state. And the last, I guess maybe the one last thing I'll say is that to your earlier point, presidents have often been so understandably hard-nosed about new enrollment, but where especially nonprofits will do it, and I will say this because I've been a violator in the past, we've gotten, we got lazy with our, you know, you bring in the new students and you lose them on the back end. So, you know, what good is that for them? So, yeah, student loan debt is a concern, but student loan debt without a degree is the bigger issue in my view. That's the challenge. So if students are going to take out debt, they should have something to show for it. And we've had a conversation in our country about how astronomical higher ed costs are. Well, okay, but we've got things to pay for. And right. you, you want quality faculty, quality resources. I think we can justify that. But if you're leaving without a degree that you're proud of, that's the problem in my view. And that's, that's the retention issue. And so we're losing those students on usually mid cycle. And that, that's, that's not acceptable. And that's where we have to really play to the, uh, you know, the best parts of ourselves. So, yeah. No, and that's and, I, and I, that's that it, especially when you have students that are are virtual. Yep. You know, it, it that makes it that much harder. You know, because students can stop out without anyone really noticing. You yes. know, or at least nearly as much as as you would a traditional student that's on campus. Yep. Yep. Yeah. You hit the nail on the head there. And to every student that we have that stops out, for example one of the things that we do is I want to know exactly why every single one of those students left. Is it because of us? Is it something we did? Is it something they're experiencing? Is it financial? Um, and to your point, if, if we've lost them, we've lost them. And so we've got to figure out, okay, we might be able to get them back, but every single one of those students should matter to us. End of yeah. story. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. We we did a retention survey of a school, and this was for their traditional on-campus student population at the time. And one of the number one issues that the students had uh, was the limited food choices at the cafeteria. Oh, yeah. And that was a big deal because they had a large international student population. And so those students, you know, in 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 this way in particular, didn't feel like they were at home. Yeah, that's a great and point. It, and it was really interesting because that, you know, that was something that came out, you know, after interviewing the the students. And so, yeah, you know, you never know what you're going <laughs> to what you're going to find. No, it's a great point that you raised because, you know, it, it goes to the idea and notion that every institution has different pressure points and factors, right, that, you know, affect them. I mean, when you and I were in college many years ago in undergrad, I mean, your bonding agent was how bad the food was, you know, it was just, yeah, but that was all right. You still had all these other things and those, those expectations of standards have shifted because of how much students are paying, what they're expecting to get out of their education for sure. Yeah. yeah. So, so how do you talk a little bit about your, your alums and how do you engage how do you engage alumni without simply sending out a letter with a bumper sticker and saying, hey, can you contribute? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, great question. Um, so Saybrook has roughly 4,500, 5,000 alums over the years. So we've, you know, as you know, we were, as mentioned earlier, we were small. So 
in the first few years, I think a little history is important here. Our, our alumni were minimally engaged, if, if at all, because we had to rebuild the infrastructure. Um, we've had a dynamic person in the seat to uh, really revitalize that function for the university. And to your point, it isn't just about you know, a bumper sticker and a contribution thing, right? So we started a, an alumni affairs council, which is an unusual, but one of the unique things about it is rather than have a president and all this kind of infrastructure, we have five co-chairs of that council from various different classes, all who are leading the charge to create professional development opportunities for alumni. We invite them to our residential experiences, both virtually and on ground. Um, we invite them also to present for uh, the co-curricular activities. Like I did a CV workshop. We had several alumni that we invited to help tweak and hone their CVs uh, to uh, women in leadership forums that uh, create networking. And those were all virtual, so it was pretty cool. Um, so it's giving back to those alumni. We also have a program that I think um, we stole this from one of, it, well, stole in quotes, uh, from another university, uh, I think it was in Arizona where we pulled it from. We also offer students upon graduation to become alumni a free course to take at any point in the future, regardless of tuition, we don't charge them. They can come in and take a course uh, to get better uh, or level up or upskill in an area. Uh, we're starting a new program this year around stackable credentials just for alumni. So. Many of our students are starting their own consultant businesses or mm. psychology businesses or, or practices, counseling, et cetera. So we're doing a whole business and healthcare forum where we help students understand, or I'm sorry, alumni talk about how do you build a business from the ground up? What's it take to market it? What, you know, how do you read a balance sheet? What it, those are basics that a lot of folks never got. I never got. I think we'd all been better off if we'd had a little yeah. financial literacy on that. Right. And I think many of our alumni are increasingly grateful for these opportunities. They're free. They're easy to do. And I think those are the types of things that build in long-term loyalty. I will say my former institution, uh, undergrad institution, there's nothing like that going on. It's a huge university, you know, huge, huge. And while I love them and I'm still very loyal to them, it's rare that I get anything other than a request for cash, right? And so had I and have, have if they were to do more of those things, and I would say this is a commonality across institutions in higher ed, you're going to build greater loyalty and greater uh, connection to your institution for a lifetime, so... Well, that's great. So now, other than the pandemic, what's been your biggest surprise over the last couple of years? Hmm, that's a good question. Biggest surprise over the last couple of years. Um, and other than the pandemic. Okay, you, 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 you've, you've shackled me into a really good... Uh, <laughs> so I guess I would say that what surprised me, and I'm talking about Saybrook now in particular, has been the community that has formed probably as a result of the pandemic, but we'll put that to the side. The way in which our community came together to help and support one another in a way that 
um, was really unique and special. And I would say that's been true of Saybrook over the many years, but I think over the last few years, especially the last two, that, that connection, uh, especially as we both talked about with the virtual piece, that has been really special. Um, the relationships that we've been able to build, um, the, the trust, the, the connectivity there. Um, Saybrook's one of its core mission pieces. The other you know, surprise has been, I think our student body stepping up where social justice issues are concerned. That's a big area of value for us. Um, you know, again, not everyone agrees with the, all the things and statements we put out, but what is really vital for us and I think has been a real bonding point for many of our students, faculty, and staff has been this just sense of esprit de corps that we're, we're here for you, we're here together. Um, and I would say the third surprise has just been the growth of our students of color across the board, our BIPOC community. Uh, we literally have doubled our population over the last few years, and we have seen just tremendous growth in the students, the connectivity to the institution, and how we're uh, advancing on a number of fronts. And that's exciting to me. I mean, I think most college presidents are still trying to figure out how to diversify their student body and their faculty. Um, and I'm, I'm really surprised, but also pleased and, and thrilled to see that happening, especially uh, at Sabre. Well, and, and without giving away any, you know, secret sauce items or anything like that, you know, there's a number of institutions out there, as you know, that, um, that are hesitant to either, either go online, provide distance learning programs, um, or might be struggling you know, with the, well, we're a traditional school, we like the on-campus, oh, we don't know about online. Saybrook clearly does it very well and is ahead of a lot of institutions. So are there, is there a tip or two that you would tell an institution, especially a tuition-dependent institution, yeah. to say, hey, in order to scale and be sustainable in some instances, you know, distance learning is important because... Yeah. Um... Again, I could go on for hours on this one. I think, I think it's been to the detriment of our entire country that we haven't been doing this longer. What we saw in the pandemic was a reactive response and a lot of bad pedagogy online, right? So, um, and, a, and a credit to all the faculty out there across the country, right, who did it because they had to and they, they made it work for whatever and however they could. So, it's not to de you know, criticize them, but it is to say institutions need to step up. And so the first tip I would give is that your vice president of academic affairs, your provosts need to embody and embrace this as a core priority, I would say the top priority. You're gonna reach more students in more places and achieve more across the board if you do it. And you don't have to do it all at once. I think the, the thing for us has been stepping into each piece of it in a pilot format to find out what works, what doesn't, modify, build out, so, you know, and then rinse and repeat. Um, I think a lot of institutions get caught in this cycle of arguing with the whole body collective of faculty over pedagogy and engagement. And really, I think it's got to be micro-sized initially, especially for like the bigger schools that at the state schools that are still hesitant, the regionals. Um, but as you say, even some of the smaller private nonprofits. Um, and I would also say that 
you know, and this is a big problem in higher ed. We don't play nicely in the same sandbox together. We all think we're doing and have the most unique missions and that we're very special each as independent institutions. And while there may be some truth to that, we also offer a lot of similarities. And so figuring out ways to collaborate across like institutions. And I would, you know, I'm gonna call out the art schools across the country because I have a real passion for the arts. Their inability to collaborate, for example, across, you know, 50, 60 institutions is resulting in the closure of some of the most storied colleges and institutions out there. And it ties back to online learning in the sense that if you're collaborating and creating some sort of consortial relationship, you can build online programming that really appeals to and reaches a wider audience and hybridize it, right? So you can have your distinctive programs over here and then have kind of a common core of online delivery, but getting creative and really starting to collaborate, and I would say radically cooperate, that's kind of our uh, catchphrase with our system uh, is one of the key ways for us to survive in the, but also to, to really get innovative in the online space. Uh, and I would say the third piece is incentivize, incentivize, incentivize faculty. If you want them to do it, they are hard, you know, I mean, I know there are different philosophies. I, our faculty do work hard and we've expected them to do a lot with no real increases for many years. We're, we're paying them better and more and we're working to incentivize them more to do innovation, right? Or to engage in innovative practices. And so I would also say that there should always be some sort of flex in an institution's budget to say, hey, we're gonna pay you five grand to build, deliver this program online and let's see how it goes. And if it's great, we're gonna give you some additional monies on the end to keep doing that so it creates that role of, of opportunity for the faculty and also benefits the students and the institution long-term. Mm -hmm. So when was the last time you picked up a trombone? <laughs> so probably three, four years ago, I think. Okay. Yeah, I still, have, yeah, I still have them. I still yeah. have them, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Well, excellent. Excellent. Well, President Nathan Long, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate uh, you being a guest on the presidential uh, Plexus Presidential Podcast Series. Uh, my pleasure. And thank you, Bradley. I appreciate it.